Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where you can hear the tips, the strategies, and the lessons learned of top industry leaders in the data science and data analytics space. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. This episode is a slightly different one. This is a presentation that I did at a conference in Canberra in Australia, Australia's capital. Uh, This was a conference for the public sector. And they asked me to speak about explainable AI methods for structured data. So if you remember last year in episode 58, I had spoken about explainable AI methods for unstructured data. So for images and videos and things like that. In this case, I'll be covering explainable AI methods for structured data and some of the packages and a framework of how to think about it. I hope you find it helpful. Let me know what you think. Here's the presentation. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Hey, how are you? I'm very excited to be back in Canberra. I came down in May to do a talk on a similar topic. And when Ellen gave me a call to speak at this conference, I was really honored and really humbled and uh, really excited that people wanted to hear a bit more about how to open the black box. So in general, we've seen a lot of machine learning models and artificial intelligence. A lot of the progress recently in those fields has been creating these <laughs> black boxes that are making miraculous predictions. But more and more, I think for trust, purposes, we need to know how those algorithms are making these decisions that they're making them at scale. So we have hundreds of thousands of decisions being made by a model within an hour. How are those decisions actually being made? So I'll cover today some approaches on how to open the black box and see what's happening in there. As you guys heard, I work at Liberty Financial as um, looking after data science and data engineering and the whole data space. It's a group of about 12 companies. I also, I'm one of the co-organizers for the Data Science Melbourne Meetup Group. And now it's the second largest data science meetup group in the world, which is amazing. It goes to show that the amount of data science talent that we have in Australia, I know that Sydney uh, has a lot of people participating in the meetup as well, Brisbane, Canberra, uh, so that the talent pool here is huge and growing. And also I host this podcast called Data Futurology, where every week I sit down with C-level executives and leaders in the industry, people that have had over 15 years experience in the space, and I get them to tell me their stories, their ups and downs, successes and failures, and I try to extract the lessons that they can impart on the next generation of upcoming data science leaders. And what we focus on is the non-technical side that is required in order to become a great data science leader. So I find that the technical content, so the latest Python packages or the latest advancements on deep learning algorithms, um, deep learning algorithms, that type of content, I think it's very well covered online. Obviously, you have got places from Coursera to DataCamp to uh, to articles that people write. I think that side of data science is very, very well covered. What's not so well covered, in my opinion, is how to be a great data science leader, how to put together an effective data science strategy. How do you execute that? How do you convince the organization to buy into what the changes that need to be done? There's so much change management that is required in data science for it to be successful. 
those are the type of topics that we talk in data futurology. We also cover starting building a team, stakeholder management, sort of the more human element of data science and not super heavy on the technical side. If you're interested, have a listen. So going back to our topic around opening the, the black box, on the headlines, there's, there's been a lot of stories of how it can go wrong. So we have uh, this one where it says Amazon scraps secret AI recruiting tool that shows bias against women. So these are type of decisions that in the case of Amazon, uh, they're made at a large scale. Uh, the type of workers that were caught in this were warehouse workers. That they have hundreds of thousands of people that work in warehouses. And the AI that was helping the very front end of this recruiting process was found to be sexist and uh, biased against women. This is uh, also an algorithm from the US. Uh, it was called the Compass algorithm. And what it did, I see some smiles there in some of the tables. People might know this one. It was a, a big story. It was trying to predict the likelihood of people to reoffend once they were going to jail. And then the, the likelihood of reoffenses dictated their, the length of time that they were sent to jail. And what it found, it was found is that it was racist and it heavily penalized African-Americans and Latinos and it would send them to jail for a much longer time than white people. This is a article about facial recognition working really well for people that are white, but not from, for people of other races. Obviously, such as myself, I'm Latino and I see a lot of other people from other parts of the world here today and we see that the algorithms that are being created are great if you're white and even better if you're a white man. Terrible. So um, here, this is one from Google saying that job ads for high paying jobs were shown more likely to men rather than women. Google, right? Like how terrible is that? So then how these things are being found is through these explainable AI methods that we're going to be covering. This one, uh, Amazon, not only on the warehouse side, but also for technical jobs, also had an AI, also race, uh, biased, sexist, and also was pro-men, this AI from Amazon. This is one literally from this week, right, October 24th. This is in the healthcare space. And this was part of a, a project where people were getting access to different levels of healthcare, supposedly according to their condition. And what was found is that it was racist. The algorithm that was making the decisions as to who would get access to better healthcare and worse healthcare, those decisions were not only made on, being made on the conditions, but also on the race. So white people got much better healthcare as a result of this algorithm operating. Obviously super dangerous, something that I, anyone working in the field can get stuck in these things. And I made a comment, I posted this article because it was quite scathing to the people that had done the work. And I thought that that was terrible. Removing bias in AI is a really hard problem. It's something that we're just facing now as the scale of these solutions are growing. And every time that we find something like this and we fix it, we're actually improving the world, literally. Because then these algorithms can then go and make these decisions much, much better than what they were doing before. So we'll talk about how can people can get tripped up on this and how to overcome it. This is typically the scenario where you have a um, computer making a prediction and you can ask the computer, hey, why, why did you make this prediction? And it goes, uh, awkward silence. Generally, the way that it's done until sort of these tests or these uh, studies come up afterwards to find the bias. So the bias, where does it come from? As I was mentioning, these news articles are quite scathing and they always say, this algorithm is racist. This algorithm is sexist. This algorithm is the worst thing that we've ever created as society. And the dirty secret is that the bias appears in the algorithm because the data that the algorithm was fed in order for it to learn, the data was biased. 
the algorithm doesn't decide to be biased. It learns the bias from what it's shown. It's shown this data. I've heard some people online uh, sometimes say or question whether the bias exists because of the lack of diversity in the teams that are creating these algorithms. So they say it's generally, you know, young men from like more specific ethnicities are the ones creating these AI. Sometimes people have wondered whether it's their own biases, the biases of the AI practitioners or the creators of the algorithms, whether it's their biases that are being passed on to the algorithm. And that's not the case. It comes from the data that the algorithm is trained with. So what it sees, the data, it represents the way that the world works. So when we saw the compass algorithm that was predicting the sentences for people and their likelihood to reoffend once they go to jail, that algorithm was trained from judges' decisions for years and years. Essentially, what it showed is really like this type of advancements in AI are really putting a mirror on society to say, for a long time in the US, these judges that the data was used to train the algorithm, these judges were biased. And it's not one person, it's heaps of them. We have this inherent sexism, inherent racism in our society, and it's something that we all want to eradicate. And I find that this is a really great tool that helps us do that, right? Because it helps us find it, it helps us measure it. And then we can improve it as a result. So that's why with the last healthcare example that I was showing you before, I didn't want people to say, to attack the researchers, to attack the machine learning practitioners. I think that that type of rhetoric just sends us backwards, really, in an area that we can be making so much progress and really actually improving the world. So the dirty secret here is that the bias comes from the data. That's how it gets into the algorithm. And it comes from the data because we are biased. We're flawed as people. And then this is being captured in the data and they're represented. So with the rise of AI, we have a really, really interesting decision where we can start to choose how we want the world to be. And we put those decisions in the algorithms and we can get algorithms to stop perpetuating inequality and racism and bias by this line of work. So with that dirty little secret out, really moving to ethical AI, that we need more explainable algorithms, so which is the opening the black box bit. But then this is really going to make us come face to face with some really challenging parts of society, of our culture, of ourselves. And we need to be comfortable working through those decisions because they're not easy decisions. So between explainable AI, which I'll cover today, and then these tough discussions that we need to have a society, that's how we go from like black box magic into a world where we can actually work with the algorithms well, and we have certainty that they're perpetuating the type of world that we do want. This point is that traditionally, when we were talking here, so in the previous slide, we were talking about the explainability in artificial intelligence. And traditionally, it's been seen that the more accuracy you have in a predictive model, it means that it's less interpretable. So it's more black box, the more accurate it is. And then the ones, the types of algorithms and models that are more interpretable. So traditionally, like if they're less black box models, if you, we can understand how the algorithm is making the decisions, then they're seen as less accurate. But then the, the type of things that are, more, I think, quickly show you now, they're trying to push us great more and more into this direction. And it's not perfect. It's based on a lot of research that has been done over the last couple of years. And it's making progress quite quickly. The idea is to make more transparent algorithms that have really good accuracy. This is um, something that related to what we were talking about before, that it's how I wanted to be really clear on where the interpretability sits when we have black box models. So we have 
the world as it works, uh, we capture data. So then the data is a representation and abstraction of the world. On top of that, uh, we learn using the black box models. And then we use the explainability methods in order to, for us to interpret what is happening in those algorithms. And here's a, a framework that I, I've found uh, super useful when trying to understand what the, these new approaches of explainability how do they work and sort of how to position them. I, I always find that a framework is quite useful. So we have here two variables and it doesn't come up very well, but global and local are connected to scope and model specific or model and model agnostic are connected to the model. So essentially when we go to explainable methods, we can have sort of outside of the slide, we can have explainable algorithms, which we'll, we'll go through a couple. And then when they're non-explainable, so traditionally they're more accurate, we hit them with this framework to try and make them more explainable. And here we combine the variables from the two sides. So we can make explainability or explainability methods that are global so that they take the whole data set and the whole algorithm at once and that they're model specific so that they work for that type of model or that type of algorithm specifically. We can also have global, taking all the data and all the whole algorithm at once, and for it to be model agnostic, so for it to work on any model, right? It's quite powerful, we'll see some of those. And then we can also have the combination with local, so we can have local which might work with one prediction, right? So in Europe, for example, with GDPR, there's the right of explainability. So people can query their bank, if their decision is being made by an algorithm, they can ask the bank why I didn't get the loan approved, right? So that's essentially one data point, one person that might have had a loan rejected. That's the local part, only one instance of the prediction. And then the, the local can be combined with model specific, so it works only with particular algorithms, or local and model agnostic. Does that make sense? Yeah, I found it really helpful in, in trying to classify where things can sit. These, because they're explainability methods, they always come after the use of algorithms that are very predictive, but very black box. So this is sort of like a step after that we can use in order to understand more of how the algorithm is making the decisions that, that, that it is making. So we'll quickly go through some interpretable models of which this is sort of the common list of offenders maybe, um, ones that are commonly used, have been used for many years, and uh, here's the names. So we have linear regression, which um, over here in the top of task, we have two different types of tasks. One is the regression, which is when we're trying to predict a number, and then that number can be a probability. So, for example, how likely is Felipe to pay back his loan? And it might be that we're 85% certain that I will pay back my loan and that might be enough for an institution to give me a loan. So the fact that we're 85% certain, the fact that that probability is a number, it means that it's a, a regression. And then the other type of task is a classification. And that's when we have, say, one of two options. Is this true or false? Or maybe we have one of five options and we want to classify people into uh, risk levels that it might be low risk, medium risk, or high risk. If we have those three categories to fit somebody in a category, that's a, a classification task. So we have here the different types of algorithms and then the tasks that they can do. And here you see the decision trees, which is a, a really versatile and explainable algorithm that it can do both classifications and regressions, same as some of the other ones with rule fit and k nearest neighbors, but uh, decision tree 
is the starting point for a lot of explainable methods that we'll be having a look. So uh, just really quickly, the linear regression, uh, most people would have seen that early on. So it's the line of best fit and we want to minimize the distance between every point and the red line and that red line might be moving. That's sort of the iterations of the algorithm in the background. And then it finds this line of best fit and it's really explainable because it gives you an equation where it tells you where it crosses the zero in this case at number five, and then it gives you another term for the equation with the slope. So then you can know exactly how it's gonna make any decision that we give it because it's come down to this really easy to understand equation. The other one is the logistic regression that as we saw, it's great for classification. And if we had say a task to predict whether somebody is going to default on their loan or not, and we had here as a default and then up here as a non-default, and we had each red dot there, was a customer that we've had in the past, we can have the logistic regression simulate this S-shape that gives you a probability for, or a classification for people to sit on either side of that spectrum. And there we see that the linear regression in that scenario would do a pretty appalling job. And here we have a decision tree. How many people have not seen a decision tree before? Not seen a decision tree, great. Okay, yeah, easy. So a decision tree gives you rules where you're separating your data. You, at the beginning, you start with all of your data and then you ask this first question. In this case, we're, we're using the data set of the Titanic, which is the information about the people that boarded the Titanic. And then the prediction of what you're trying to find out is whether they survived the, the crash or not. And we start up here with all of the people that went on board the Titanic and you, you separate them by gender. So if they're male, they go here. And then if they're female, they go here. And what you want to do is get to these leaf nodes, which they're called, where they're subsets of the data, that they're groups that are very homogeneous. So they're little groups that look very similar to one another. And we can say, if somebody who boarded the Titanic is male, and we say is not an adult, right? So it's a child. And then we say, is in third class? And we say, no. So it was in first class or second class. Then we say that 100% of those survived. And then the reason why it's so uh, explainable, it's because you have really clear rules. So you say, for males who are children and were in first or second class, 100% of them survived the crash of the Titanic. However, if you say, for males that are adult, only 20% of them survived. So in this case, the model is giving us a really good summary of all the data and it's created these little compartments for us with the rules of how to separate them so we can easily digest them, which is part of the explainability, and then we can see how it would make new decisions on data that it hasn't seen before. That's um, obviously really important for the explainability that we're talking about. And one of the other ones is uh, this k-means clustering where as part of a clustering task, it wants to put things into groups that are similar to each other and also quite explainable because it does that by using a distance measure. So it tries to find if you're looking at sort of dots in a plot and there's natural groups that sit together with a bit of a gap between them, this type of algorithm will say that the ones that sit together or closer together, they're part of the same group versus the ones that sit a little bit further apart. And then this one's obviously kind of like a joke one where um, you can see the groups by the color, but it's like crazy dudes in a swimming pool or something. That's essentially how the algorithm works. From the interpretable algorithms, we'll go into 
two of these model agnostic interpretability methods. So these are ones that you can apply to any black box algorithm. And this is sort of like a following step. And the way that a lot of them work is they try to use many interpretable models. So like the ones that we just saw before, like the linear regression, the logistic regression, the decision tree. These model agnostic explainability methods try to use lots of the explainable models in order and combined in order to explain how the black box algorithms are making their decisions. So we'll look at two ways that that's done. And here, I just wanted to highlight with this slide is that when we have a machine learning model that is a black box, typically we only look at an evaluation metric which might be an accuracy. So we say like this algorithm is 86% accurate. And we go, okay, is that good? Is that bad? Sometimes we have algorithms that are like 52% accurate, which is just better than flipping a coin, right? And a lot of times, for example, in hedge funds and investments, the algorithms that they use to do trading out in the wild, they're no more accurate than 52%. And then what happens is it means that between buying and not buying, their edge, like their margin, their edge is only that 2%. But then when you do hundreds of thousands of trades, that 2% amplifies to a lot of money because you're essentially playing with a lot of money knowing that you will lose about 48% of the time, you'll win about 52% of the time, and it means that your money base is growing, growing over time. So sometimes the accuracy, the evaluation metric, isn't very high. I remember when I first started working, when I was at ANZ and I first started working there, I was coming across executives that were saying, predictive models, they're always like 99% accurate, otherwise they're garbage, right? And I was like, ugh, kind of no. It depends on the case, on the scenario. When you're trying to predict people's behavior, you always have a much lower accuracy score compared to when you're trying to predict, say, how a machinery will perform. So if you're a large mine site and you have information about how one of these huge trucks is performing, you can predict when a belt inside an engine of a truck, when you can predict very accurately when that belt will break due to the use and the weight that it's been carrying, you can very accurately predict that. But if you're trying to say, predict when somebody's gonna buy a certain product, like that's a lot harder. So then the accuracy drops a lot. And then if you go into the investment, it's even lower again. So with uh, machine learning models, a lot of people focus on the accuracy as an evaluation method, but uh, in this case, we'll also be talking about how do we get it, make it more explainable. So one of these methods, one of these model agnostic methods, which means it applies to all methods, it's called LIME, so local interpretable model agnostic explanations. And the LIME is now a package that comes in Python. Python is a programming language that a lot of data scientists use to create algorithms and analyze data. So once the black box algorithm has been created, you can use this LIME package to get explanations about individual prediction. And that's where the, this local word comes from. So when we we're looking at the framework before, on one side we had global and local, and then the other side we had model agnostic or model specific. And I was saying how we marry those two sides and get the different combinations. This combination is local. So give me the, explain to me how you made the prediction for this one person. That's the local part. And then the model agnostic is something that works across all different models. So 
regardless of the black box model that you used before to get a really high accuracy score, regardless of what approach you use there, you can use this line to understand the predictions of one individual person. And here, uh, it doesn't come up too well on the screen, but there's a yellow dot about there, which is easier to see there where, where it's um, got the black points around it. And you want to understand how the algorithm made that prediction for that one yellow dot in the whole space of where it can make the prediction. So this is the whole space. It's making one type of decision when it's the blue here and when it's the white in this sort of A shape, it's making another type of decision, right? And then we want to understand how it's made this decision where the blue dot is, so that's just one person, how it made that one decision. The way that Lime approaches it is it almost doesn't care about the data was used to train the black box model. So that data chucks it away and then it creates its own data, which is all these dots there. So it's just sort of using the black box algorithm with all these different inputs saying, what if I throw you this? What would you predict? What if I throw you that? What would you predict in that case? It's just sort of testing it out, almost like feeling how the algorithm is working and it gets to use it as many times as it wants. And then what it does is then it goes from this where it has a bunch of predictions that the black box algorithm made and then it assigns different weights to that prediction and it gives more importance or more weight to the predictions that are right around the one that we want to predict. So essentially, if this is around why I didn't get a home loan, it would create a lot of people that look some like me and then other people that look not like me and they would put that information through the black box model and then it would give more importance to the people that look like me which might be somebody that earns the same amount but is a little bit younger and then a little bit older or somebody who is the same age but earns a little bit less and a little bit more. Those are sort of like the differences in the data that it's creating and then to the ones that are very close to the uh, person or the attribute that you're trying to predict gives that more weight and then it brings in the explainable algorithms that we saw before and it tries to use a combination of them that it can be a linear regression, a logistic regression or a decision tree and it tries to use them to see what which one of those can have the best prediction for this yellow dot that we want to know based on the data that it got out of the black box algorithm and then through that it's essentially estimating how the black box algorithm works for this one instance being me it's estimating how that black box algorithm works for that one scenario does that with explainable models and then it gives you information like this to say what is the prediction difference right between using the black box algorithm and the explainable approaches how much are you losing in accuracy and that's where we saw that initial chart that before it used to be that you lost a lot of accuracy and over time it's getting sort of closer and closer so lime is one of the key approaches and there's a, a python package that does that so it's the local and model agnostic and then the other approach that I wanted to tell you about today is these Shapley values, which is also local and model agnostic. So similar to Lime in that sense. It works similar to Lime, it's a little bit, a little bit different. So in this case, say we have a black box model that predicts the price of, the, of apartments and we have this one instance, one apartment where it's close to a park, the apartment is 50 square meters on the second floor and cats are not allowed and then we say that our algorithm predicts that that's 300 grand. And then what it does, it takes all the instances where the price is predicted and it gets an average for all of them. And what we might find is that the average for all the data that we have, it might be 310 grand. So we have 
a 10 grand difference between our actual and our predicted, which is the 300, 10 grand difference between our, our predicted being 300 and our average for all the apartments. And our average in this case is 310. And then what it does, it tries to find within the data that it has, what are the different combinations of data points that can explain that 10 grand difference between the average and the predicted price for this one example. So in the way that I like to think about this is kind of as if each data row was coming into a room. And initially say we start with a room that's empty, so there's no data, and then say five rows of data come in and we get the average. And then we try to estimate what are the features that are important for that prediction and how it's different to the average. And then we get another row of data coming in and we do that estimation again. We try to see how does that change our average and what can we learn from the new data that we're seeing that shows us what are the difference between our prediction in this case and the average. As a result, you get something like this where it says some columns give you from, when you're trying to explain why a value was predicted, some columns and some values are going to take you from the average up and then some columns are going to take you from the average down. So in the case of our apartment, we might find that not allowing cats might be a positive, but then being close to the park, it might be a negative one because it's a dangerous area. And then, I don't know, people might break in from the park in, right? So you get to see how each individual column and data point, how they affect the the value starting from an average of all the data sets. It tells you whether the information in that particular row gives you a higher value than the average or a lower value than the average. And you start to understand how it's driving those changes. These is just two model agnostic methods that I picked, which was Lime and these Shapley values. There's heaps of other ones and I'll put up some resources at the end about others if you want to find out more. I really wanted to go through using a non-explainable method like the random forest and how you can start to get some explainability out of it, which is obviously a different approach than using explainable models to try to get the same predictions, which is what we were seeing just before. So the random forest, I love. It's one of my favorite algorithms, which I know it's like a weird thing to say, like having a favorite algorithm, but I really like it. It's like, I see it as the Swiss army knife of machine learning. Like it really works across everything that you throw at it. Yeah, there's some nods there. Yeah, good man. So the random forest, it's called forest because it's made of a lot of trees. I know it's like, boom, trees, yep. So the, each tree is the decision tree that we saw before. And then uh, the random bit comes that for each tree, the algorithm gives it random columns. So say if you have 10 columns as your input for the algorithm, instead of giving the same 10 to every tree, it might give four columns to every tree. And then every time the columns are different, and then the rows of data that it's seeing, it's also different every time. And it creates heaps of these trees. And then it does this voting method to get to aggregate the overall predictions. So in this case, we see that in this example, one tree might classify our input as A. The other two trees that we see classified as B. So then when we aggregate that, we say that the final prediction is B because we took those votes from the different trees and two of them said B and one of them said A. So 
obviously because it's an it's what's called an ensemble method which is a combination of lots of other algorithms because it is that combination it's not very explainable one of the things that it does do it tells you this variable importance to see the type of columns that are most important for the decisions the variable importance is quite widely used but the reason why i wanted to show you this and why i had variable importances in plural is because there's another feature in random forest which is called local variable importance and as we learned before the local part means just one row, like only one prediction, prediction of one person. And what the local variable importance does, it tells you which columns are being used for that one particular prediction. Great. Like now we know that out of, say you had a, a data set with 500 columns, we know that which ones are being used for this particular prediction, really valuable. And then the other one that I really love is this uh, proximity matrix where it takes from the bottom of all the trees, and I might go back a couple of slides there, to build the proximity matrix, it finds which nodes, which end point, particular rows of data ended up in the trees. And then it says, if, for example, if Andrew and I end up a lot of times in the same end node of the trees, of all the different trees, when it gets to the proximity matrix, it'll say that Andrew and I are very similar, right? And that our predictions are quite similar. And sometimes it's quite surprising the people or the attributes that look similar to the algorithm. And you can do really interesting decisions off the back of that. In one of the companies that I worked for in the past, we did, they sold men's suits. And we found that by trying to predict the inventory levels that they should have, we found that one of the stores, and using the proximity matrix, we found that one of the stores held completely the wrong inventory for the location that it had. So it had loose, expensive suits that are targeted to older men. And from this, it was being categorized with stores that sold cheap, tight-fitting suits for younger guys. And then the fact that it had one type of stock for older guys, but it was classified with the younger guys, it was really weird. We ended up showing that to the CEO. They changed the merchandise the week after, and then the store started to perform better as a result. So you, from non-explainable algorithms, you can get some explainability. And when you can't or you want it more, you can use the model agnostic methods that we spoke. What we spoke about in opening the black box, biases in the data. There's interpretable models that is being used in order to understand what's happening with the black box models. We cover these two model agnostic methods, and then we spoke quickly about interpreting an algorithm that's non-interpretable. This is obviously important because we want to build trust with people. We want to be able to give an explanations and manage people's expectations, and we want to improve the type of decisions that we're putting out there in the world. And in the podcast, there's a couple of episodes that talk more about this. Episode 58 was the presentation that I did in Canberra in May, where I covered some of these methods, but more targeted to unstructured data. So images, text, audio, how do you explain how the algorithms are using, making decisions on that type of data? The stuff that we covered today is more for structured data. So when you have a database table that looks like an Excel spreadsheet. And then I really recommend episode 70 because this is with uh, Christoph Molnar. He wrote the textbook on interpretable machine learning. And the textbook's available for free online. The guy's an absolute legend. He's doing his PhD in Germany and explains things really simply. If you Google his name and interpretable machine learning, the book will come up. If you listen to the episode, he's explaining a lot of the, uh, the concepts there as well. And I think we have a link to the book in the show notes. Obviously, the podcast, you can listen to it on any podcasting app, on your phones, tablet, uh, on your computer, etc.
Sorry to run over time. Thank you so much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, Head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.